0: Happy Monday evening, men. How we doing? All right. Session two of 13 sessions, and I uh, hope you guys are excited as I am. Hopefully by now everyone has had a chance, now that you know where we're reading through First and Second Thessalonians, you guys have had a chance to read through at least 1 Thessalonians, and then maybe partially, or even all of Second Thessalonians. Uh, so with that, we want to go right into 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, starting in verse 1. I'll give you guys a moment to get there. Let's ask the Lord to bless our, uh, our little Bible study tonight. Heavenly Father, Lord God, you are so gracious, so merciful to each and every single man here, myself included. Lord, we can't start this Bible study without acknowledging you, without worshiping you, about lifting up your name and just giving you glory because you're worthy. And we want to do that now in our hearts. God, I know that I've been praying for each of these men here and countless others have as well, especially in light of last week's study. Lord, I want to thank you up front now for all the men that you've brought and for all of the work that your spirit has already begun to do. And just pray that you would continue to do the work that only you can do. God will give you the praise and glory. We give it to you now and we will at the end. Bless our little Bible study. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. All right, well, why don't we just jump right into it. It's verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, I will often say Silas just to keep it short. So if, I, if you hear me say Silas, I'm talking about Silvanus. Here in 1.1, Paul says, Paul. Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Now, at the very beginning, I want to highlight something, and that is this Paul, Silas, and Timothy. And you might be asking yourself, Matt, what is so remarkable about that? Well, on its face, not a whole lot, except we're, there's something missing here. I would draw your attention to this verse and I would ask you, what's missing from this one little verse? Be scratching your head, say, Gosh, Matt, I, I don't know. You just read one verse so far. We're missing a title. We're missing a title. In every other letter that Paul wrote, there's a title. Now, it varies from book to book. Uh, but there's a title talking about his apostolic authority, his call to ministry as an apostle. So we're, at the very outset, we don't see anything about mentioning of an apostle, as I said, apostolic calling or a command to preach. It's missing. And if you look at Philemon, don't go there, but just from memory, you know that he says Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, which is a type of title. So we're missing any part whatsoever of apostolic authority and command from this verse. And just by way of contrast, don't go there, just listen. 1 Corinthians 1.1, Paul says, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 1.1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And even in his letter to Titus 1.1, he says, Paul, a servant of God And an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, why is he doing that? Why does Paul have or feel it necessary in all of his epistles, but this one, to talk about his apostolic calling? Largely, it's because he's about to render some doctrines, he's about to correct some error, and he wants the audience, the Lord does, wants the audience to know that it's not just some guy telling you some doctrine and there's really no authority from heaven to preach what he's about to preach. So he says, look, this isn't my opinion. I'm paraphrasing, of course. This doesn't come from me. It's not man's teaching. It's not man's doctrine, we went through that, if you were with us, in our time in Galatians. Now, for some of you, you say, ah, but Matt, I mean, Titus, really? Uh, why does he feel the need to tell Titus, of all people, that he has an apostolic calling? Well, We have to remember what Paul was doing when he wrote to Titus. And again, just from memory here, you're looking here at 2.15. Paul says, Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. The very reason, or one of the larger reasons that Paul had written to Titus in the first place was to set in order elders at the church. You guys remember that? Set in order elders. And there were very stringent qualifications. We're not going to go through that tonight. But you can imagine Titus being a young man, protege of Paul and Silas, and there he is on his own, and Paul leaves him to set in order the things at that local church. And so he says here in 2.15, Titus, he says, declare these things, listen, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. Paul's adding this because some people, not all of them, but there must have been some men in this local congregation who were disregarding. Ah, that's Titus. We don't need to listen to him. Now, Paul, oh, you know, if Paul says it, and really it's if the Lord says it, because Paul is just an apostle, and Titus, by extension, is just a messenger. He's not a apostle like Paul, but he is a gospel teacher, preacher, elder, pastor, and he's developing this church. So, putting that all together, it's necessary that Paul, in writing these letters, even to Timothy, he needs to set at the front what his authority is. He's not building himself up, but he has to declare some things from heaven, and they need to listen. So, if you won't listen to Titus, will you listen to me as I listen to the Lord? And that's what's happening. So it's written for the benefit of Tim. All right, or uh, Titus. Excuse me. So let's let's go back to First Thessalonians one one. It says Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Now, what kind of people were these people? I gave you the contrast in him developing his letters with a title. Well, what kind of people were these? And just for the sake of time, I'll just reference a few of them. In 4 9 of this letter, he says, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. And indeed, he says in verse 10, uh, that is what you were doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia, but we urge you more and more, brothers. Uh, to do this more and more. And then, of course, 2, 19, and 20, who can forget? For what is our hope or joy or crown or boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? And then he declares in 20, you are our glory and joy. And then again in 1 Thessalonians 2, 7, 8, and 11, don't turn there, just listen. He says, we were gentle among you, Paul says, like a nursing mother, taking care of her own children. He says in verse 8, So being affectionately desirous of you, we are ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. And then in 11, he says, We appealed to you like a father with his children. And so his appeal in this particular letter to them is one of love, joy, tenderness, warmth, sacrifice, as I said in verse 8, he says, being affectionately desirous of you, you we were ready to share with you not only the gospel, we weren't just teaching you the precepts of God, but what else? But also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. And we'll leave much of that when we get to chapter 2, but there there was preaching, but it was a partnership with them. There was doctrine, of course, naturally, but there was discipleship and we talk a lot about that here and as I said in verse 8 literally sharing life discipleship of course you have the preaching but then you have the coming alongside with it all right so in that verse alone we have the from so it's a letter from Paul Silas and Timothy now we need to look at the to who's this written to Matt we know well just bear with it right who's it written to he says to the church to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And the interpreters here are, are rendering this word ecclesia as church. And there's no problem here. It it meant originally to be an assembly or a general assembly of people coming together in a general sense. Just anyone in public, you would have a gathering of people and it would be ecclesia. That's the, that's the Greek. And so it then came to be known or thought of as a religious assembly. That's pretty much what we know it today. And that could have been Jews, right, at synagogue. It could have been uh, regular pagan Gentiles and their pagan uh, uh, deities um, and and doctrines of pagan religions, very polytheistic. But that wouldn't be uh, as accurate as Paul wants to be here. He needs to make it un mistakable about who he's writing to. And so he adds, listen now, he says, this is to the church, okay, Ecclesia, okay, not just any Ecclesia, not just any assembly, but watch now, it's an Ecclesia, it's an assembly, it's in a church that is in God the Father, and, capital, and, these are linked, and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so they have an earthly residence in Thessalonica, but they have a heavenly residence in Heaven, they have an eternal residence with God in heaven. Positionally, they are children of God. And that's what he says. Look, at, He says, in God the Father, the Father. They're children of God, the Father, in and through or by the means of Christ Jesus. Listen to John 1.12, just listen. But to all who did receive him, that is Christ Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God children of God, by means of faith, by means of believing in the Son. Galatians 3, 26 and 27. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. In Christ Jesus, you are sons, you're adopted. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And so he says this assembly is not just in God, but it's connected with being in Christ Jesus. They're made sons, adopted into the family of God, baptized, as it were, into Christ Jesus. This isn't a water baptism, which you guys are all familiar with. This is a faith baptism. This is coming to faith. It's a personal placing your faith and trust, accepting the gospel for what it is in Christ Jesus alone. And so it's a baptized being baptized into Christ. Does that make sense? I hope it does. They are deluged, as I said. So this is not a random, it's not a run-of-the-mill ecclesia, as I said, of random citizens just coming together, but they are born again, they are regenerated, they are children of God in Christ Jesus. All right, now, still in verse 1, if you can believe it or not, there is one little part that I left off here, and it speaks of grace and peace, grace and peace, You see that? He goes, let's read it together. He goes, Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. And it's easy to just overlook something like that because that little phrase, grace and peace, is in all of Paul's writings, all of them. I dare you to go through and just kind of look through, wow, that just repeats, grace and peace, grace and peace, grace and peace, and say, okay, Matt, what's the point? We're going to make the point here, so we don't have to make the point later in some of our other studies, but it's one worth noting. We don't want to miss it. When you guys read this letter, it's easy to get caught up and fast, ah, grace and peace, I know grace and peace, and just keep moving. Slow down a little bit and look at some of these words here. He says grace and peace, and you say, what's the big deal? Grace and peace, peace and grace, semantics, right? Semantics, this is not wordplay. This is not wordplay. You cannot say, this isn't an instance of tomato, tomato, potato, potato. It's grace and then peace. It is not peace and then grace. As I said, it's not semantics. So let's look at that for just a moment. When we think of peace, what is peace? What is peace? Peace is the absence of war. It is the absence of conflict. It is the absence of contempt. What about mankind, though? What does the Bible say about mankind and conflict and contempt and war? John 3, 19. Don't go there. Just listen. And this is the judgment. What's the judgment? This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Their works were evil, and they love darkness. They don't love God. They don't love righteousness. Righteousness. They love darkness because their deeds or their works were evil. And mankind is under wrath, under severe eternal judgment. The carnal mind is hostile to God and the things of God. You'll remember from Romans 8:7: the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. That's the carnal mind. It does not... It wills not to, and indeed it cannot. James 4.4 4 says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world, he makes himself an enemy of God. And so by nature, all of mankind, apart from Christ Jesus, we are children of wrath. Listen to Ephesians 2.3. Speaking of our lives as we were dead before Christ, he says, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And listen, and were by nature, our nature was that we were children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Children of wrath who want nothing whatsoever to do with God, haters of God, haters of his word, haters of righteousness, because we love evil. Our deeds are evil and we love darkness. This is the condition of mankind. We have to make peace. How does such a person who is hostile in mind, who loves darkness, how does such a person have peace with God? How does it happen? Romans 5 1 and 2. Therefore, Paul says, since we have been justified by faith, since that has happened, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Can I say that again a little slower? Therefore, conclusion, since we have already been justified by faith, this has already happened, it's a completed work. Since that is true and it's complete, we have now present tense and ongoing with continuous results. We now have peace with God through, through what? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 2 says, through him, Christ Jesus, we have also obtained Access by faith into his grace. Grace. Why is it grace and peace? Because peace doesn't come until you first have grace. It is the grace of God that brings peace. It's not peace with God and now I'll have grace. It's the loving, gracious, unmerited favor of God in your life and my life. It's unearned as I said. The path to peace is paved with grace. By grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of your own. You guys remember that from Ephesians 2? So it's faith, faith. So this little statement, this little what I would call throwaway, it's not to be thrown away, please don't misunderstand, but this, well, it's from Paul, Silas, and Timothy, And it's to this church as you guys are reading the different epistles in your Bible and you're going through it and you're like, okay, let's go, let's go, let's go. I just want to get to the meat of the thing. And I get that. I do, right? But let's just slow down a little bit and really capture some of the essence of what Paul is saying. So I hope that makes sense to you guys. All right. The rest of this chapter through uh, verse 10 is really about two things, two things. Looking at, discovering, and identifying the marks... Of genuine faith or a genuinely faithful church? What are the marks of a faithful church? And what are the marks of the gospel presentation? What is a good gospel presentation? These are the two things that we'll be looking at for the remainder of our time. So picking up in verse 2 and 3, let's look at it. What does Paul say? He says, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we're going to skip over two because our intro, if you missed it, you'll have to go back and listen to it, but we spent a long time in verse 2 throughout that introduction about Paul and Silas constantly giving thanks and going before God, constantly remembering them in their prayers. What we want to focus on are the three attributes of why He's going to God on their behalf. What are the three things? He says, we give thanks to God, always remembering you, always constantly mentioning you, and we're remembering before our God and Father. Remembering what? What are you remembering, uh, Paul? And he's reflecting back. Chapters 1, 2, and 3 are all reflective, okay? Paul's talking to the church in Thessalonica, but he's reflecting back on what's already happened before we get into chapters 4 and 5 moving forward. And he says, I remember before God, before our God and Father, your, your work of faith, These are the things that I remember. I'm remembering your work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. These are the three attributes of why he remembers them. I'll say it again. We have work of faith, labor of love, and the third thing is steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we could get super technical and you can look and see here that, again, the tense of the work. The tents of the labor, the tense of the steadfastness is all right now present tense moving forward he's not remembering things that used to be he's remembering things that are today certainly used to be but is still ongoing It's still ongoing and his hope is that it would continue on all right so let's look at the first one. the first attribute is work of faith work of faith. simply, this is uh, their faith is a faith that results in works. It is fruit-bearing, t- said simply. It's a faith that produces fruit. Now, I want to be very clear. This is not a works-based faith, right? I want you all to hear me now. You're not working for faith. You're not out there churning butter every single morning hoping that God will recognize your good deeds and somehow bless you. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a faith that is alive. We're talking about a faith that results in fruit, fruit-bearing works. It is a faith that is working. Not working for faith, but a faith that results in works. I hope that makes sense to you guys. And so it's a faith that is proven, it is tested and proven as authentic, as valid, as as genuine because of the works. Why don't you guys turn to James? Turn to James chapter 2. You guys already know where I'm going, but let's turn there because I want to actually read the verses. James 2, starting in 14, James is making a point that faith, real faith, is always marked, it is always characterized by fruit, by works. It results in something. It's not dead. It's not isolated by itself. And he says in two fourteen, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? What good is it? And he asks the question, Can that faith save him? 215, if and he gives an example. Let me give you an example. He says, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, this is the condition, and one of you says to them, Go in peace. Be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. His question is, what good is that? And you look on that and you say, it's ridiculous. It's, it's absurd. It's preposterous. It's ridiculous. And so he says in verse 17, so also in as much, uh, this is me uh, ad-libbing here, but he says so also, but we could say in as much as that is absurd, so also is this, faith by itself if it does not have works is Dead. It's dead. Later on in twenty, verse 20, he says, he says, do you want to be shown? Should I show you, you, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? 26, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Faith without works is dead. And so he says, I'm remembering your work of faith. Again, not working for faith, you have faith. And because your faith is real, because it's genuine, because it's wrought in God, it demonstrates, it proves itself as such with works. And it is a working faith. It's a working faith. Listen to Jesus. He said often, You will recognize my disciples. How will you recognize them? You're looking out into a crowd. There's a disciple. There's a disciple. I don't think that guy's a disciple. How? How will you know? How will you know? Their fruit. The fruit of what? The fruit of their lives. The fruit of their walk. The pattern and practice of their walk. We talked about it last time, didn't we? I said I was going to pull, pull everyone up here, and we're going to put your lives on the board. Didn't I say that? The pattern and practice of your life. What is it marked by? How is it characterized? Right? What does it look like? The fruit. The works. Your lives. How you speak. How you act. Where you go. What you're doing. Not just here, but out there, on the road, with your family, at work, etc., and on and on it goes. John 15, 8, just listen, what did Jesus say? He says, by this, he says, by this, that I'm about to tell you, this thing, this thing right here, right here, that thing, that thing right there, by this thing, my Father is glorified. What thing? What thing? Let's look at it. That you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. A lot of people can say a lot of things. We call those professors, don't we? They profess a lot of things. They profess to know God, but they walk in darkness. Right? Read 1 John. That'll keep you up at night. They profess to know God, but they don't. Inwardly, they are ravenous wolves, and they love darkness rather than light. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and thus prove to be my disciples. Real and genuine faith results in works. Fruit-bearing, get it? Second attribute, labor of love, labor of love. And you look at this and you say, wait a second, (laughs) got work over here, work of faith, and now we have a labor of love. But if you look at the Greek, two different words, ergos, for work, for a faith that is working, and here it's kapos, kapos. What an interesting word for labor. Let me just tell you a little bit about it. It is uniquely connected to pain, Trouble, tribulation, difficulty, grief even, sorrow. It even speaks of a type of pain and difficulty that is inflicted on somebody. Whereas, let's say I picked up all these chairs over here, and then you waltzed in and just threw them all over the place. Ah, I just did all that work. I'm in a hurry. I have an appointment I need to get to all right, I will pick them up. And so so this this is connected to not just pain and trouble and tribulation and difficulties, grief and sorrow, but it's also connected to a type of grief, a type of sorrow, a type of pain and tribulation that is inflicted on somebody. And you say, yeah, but that's my work too. Well, that's maybe another story. No, this is, this is a labor of love. It is a, it's painful. It's not easy. And that's what he's trying to say. I remember these things about you. I remember these three attributes. Your working faith. It's a faith that is working. It results in fruit. And now I also remember your labor of love. It's a love that isn't easy. It's a love that loves first. And we all here can love because... He first loved us. And we hear that often, right? It can almost be a bumper sticker. But genuinely, think about that. We are marked by love because he loved. And he's the one that outstretched his hand in your direction and mine, didn't he? He did in mine. He did in mine. He reached down and pulled me out of darkness. That's how that worked. And so we are to be a people, just as the Thessalonians were, who were laboring in love. It's easy to love when it's easy. That's probably not real love either. Right? So, what, what is this? As I said, it's marked by long suffering. It's marked by patience. It is outward, others centered, not self centered. It's mired in difficulty. That's what it's associated with. Suffering, annoyance. How annoying would it be if you, as I said, let's go back to chairs, you throw it all over the place and I have to pick it up? It's, just, it's, it's annoying. It's, it's a mild difficulty, it's a mild discomfort. What about money? Right? Money source of great tribulation for some, right? Are you able to part with your money? And so this this word for love is agape. You guys know what agape, love. It's, in a simple term, charitable love. Charitable love. Real charity is giving to those who can't possibly return. They can't possibly give back in value. They can't reciprocate. About all they could muster is a thank you, all right? That's about. That's what that looks like. So question, how to know if your love is a labor of love? First, it's got to be charitable. We just talked about that. That's agape. It's outward. It's not about you. Oh, and look at this. It is a love that is marked by long-suffering. It's marked by tribulation and difficulty. So here's my example. You extend first, right? You're extending. This is how to know if your Uh, operating in the labor of love, right here. You extend first, right? You start and you extend outwardly to someone who can't, right? And you're loving them in some way that meets their needs, loving them even just in compassion, whether it's a physical need or just coming alongside them, whatever it is you're doing to love them. And what is the response? Look at the response. Their reaction is one of apathy. How about contempt? How dare you help me? What about unthankfulness? Carelessness? Now watch. What is your reaction? It was hard enough the first part. Wasn't the first part hard? I told you to reach out first. It's tough, right? And then I told you to love them charitably. Ah, that's another one. And even if you can barely do that, right? Then I asked you, what is the reaction when you do those things? And and their reaction is one of contempt, one of apathy, one of unthankfulness. Now I'm going to come back. What is your reaction? How are you gonna respond? Do you recoil sharply right do you close do you close your checkbook immediately? Do you yourself respond with contempt, with anger, with malice, with bitterness? Do you shut up your heart to that person and refuse kindness? Maybe you're keeping score now huh, okay see if I'll help you again. huh oh, I remember you I, I know mine never forgets, right? Or, 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 do you quietly persevere and keep loving them? Matt, they moved out to another country. Whew, glad that's over. No, no, no. Uh, now there's someone else to love. Uh, yeah. This doesn't stop. Hey, Matt, I found my one on that video. Well, we're, we did a different video. I found my one. I found my one. Hey, move, right? So no, there's always a one. Maybe there's a two. Maybe there's a three. Maybe there's, you have a whole, you know, group of guys okay so you have to examine your reaction it reveals the heart he says your work of faith your labor of love and our third attribute he says steadfastness of hope which we talked a lot about last week so we won't spend a whole lot of time on that in which is crucial for tonight's teaching it's a steadfastness of hope in the lord jesus christ The question is, where is their steadfastness of hope? Yes, they have a steadfastness of hope. Great, all right? You can listen to last week's teaching for that. But tonight, I want to know where that steadfastness of hope is. Where have they put their rest? Where have they put their confidence? Where is it? It's in none other than our Lord Jesus Christ. And for me, I would have just written, it's your steadfastness of hope in Christ. Sufficient. Sufficient. Steadfastness of hope in Jesus Sufficient, that works, all right? Steadfastness of hope in the Lord. Okay, now we're getting closer, but who's your Lord? The Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a steadfastness of hope. It is a resolute, uncompromising, settled confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's Lord, he's Savior, but he's Lord. He's Lord, and we listen, and we obey, and we love him. That's why we obey. We, we obey because we love him. And so it was a steadfastness of hope. As I said, rigid, immovable, unshakable, incorruptible, resolute, confidence that Jesus is not just Savior, but also Lord. All right, so they're living examples. And this right here, I want to sum them up real, real fast here, two and three. They are living, uh, they're, they're, they're working and operating in a way, these three marks that compels paul and silas and timothy to go to the lord and a remember them and then go not just remember them but bring them up every single time unceasingly paul would say before the lord and remembering wow their work of faith man their labor of love their steadfastness of hope in our lord jesus christ amazing so as i said earlier we're looking at marks of a faithful church not a comprehensive list, but three markers that Paul references here in this letter. And we also want to look at the gospel. So let's, uh, let's look at that. Let's look at that. We're in verse 4. Verse 4. Let's read it. For we know, brothers, beloved by God, that he has chosen you. Now, if you're anything like me, you're like, mm, we're going to camp right here. I already know where we're going. We're going right here. The doctrine of election. Whew. I don't want to disappoint anybody. But Pastor John preached on that. Spent 40, 50 minutes almost a year ago. It was uh, the spring semester of 21. Great teaching. We're not going to teach on it tonight, A, because of time. But B, textually, he's not teaching on it. Listen now. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. And then he goes on. He never really discusses this. Idea of election. He never really expounds on it. Now we have other letters that he's written that talk to this. We have other areas of scripture that speak to it. But as I said, that's for another time. You can always get the audio file of the teaching that Pastor John did. So let's look at it here. Uh, What we want to look at is we want to focus on the use of bringing it up, not what it is, but why does he why does he bring it up? Why mention it? And uh, in my notes here, it's to demonstrate and prove. A, that God has chosen them and that they are beloved by God. But how does he even begin to do that? It's like building a home. Well, I'm going to put up the walls. I'm going to you know, put up this. But you can't do that until you put down the foundation. And the question is, how does he know? Look at that. He says, we know, for we know. We are certain of something. We're certain that God loves you. We're certain that he's chosen you. How does he know? How, does, how can Paul be so certain of that? All right, so let's just take a few minutes and let's read the rest of this chapter. I'm going to start in verse 5. He asks a, or I'm asking the question, Paul, how do you know? How do you know they're beloved? How do you know that they're chosen? You're the ones using those words. He says, we are confident you're loved. We know there's no mystery. There's no question. You are absolutely chosen. How do you know? How, how can you come to this conclusion so quickly in verse 4 of, of the entire letter here? Well, let's read verse 5 to the end. Verse 5, verse 5 that I read, the gospel comes to them. As I told you, it's reflective. He's reflecting on what happened. Chapters 1, chapters 2, chapters 3. And he's reflecting. He goes, I know these things to be true. And what happened in verse 5 was the gospel came to them. That's what happened in verse 5. Verses 6 to 10 is the response of the gospel presentation. All right? So let me say that again. Verse 5 is the gospel being presented to them. Verses 6 through 10 is their response. And all of this culminates in his saying confidently, I know this to be true. You are brothers, you're beloved, and you're chosen. So let's kind of look at it, shall we? So here are the things that mark this, this gospel. It came in word, right? So if you're marking this down, the gospel came to them in word, it came in power, it came in the Holy Spirit, and it came with full conviction. Now, Just a little sidebar here, real fast. You'll notice that the verse also says, let me read it here, you know what kind of men we prove to be among your sake. We're not going to spend much time on that at all tonight because... A lot of the character of Paul and Silas is found in chapter 2, which we will get to next time. So I don't want to spoil it all. But I do want to show you ever so quickly and briefly that the gospel presentation can have the word. It can have the power. It can have the Holy Spirit. It can have full conviction, which is largely what we're going to look at tonight. But he does add that little uh, footnote, doesn't he? He says, you know what men we prove to be. You know what men we prove to be. You know the character of our lives. We spent... I know it was brief, but we spend enough time that you know the character of our walk. Important. You can't just spit out the gospel and live a life abased. You can't, well, I'm, I'm a really good at evangelism, and everyone says I have a gift of evangelism, and I'm just so awesome at it. Um, but I can live a life of sin and rebellion over here. Because as long as I present the gospel, truthfully, I'm not adding error, I'll be fine. And that's, a real, that's real disappointing. He says, and we'll look at it next time, you know what men we prove to be in the proclamation of the gospel. All right, with that, let's look at this. So we have a few things to look at. The word, it came in word, it came in power, it came in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. Let's look at the word. All right, let's look at that. We have logos, the Greek is logos, language, real simple. And, and look at what he actually says. It didn't come in word only. It's not that he's saying it came in word. He wants to get to the, the big meaty things. It's kind of a, well, you know it came in word. Like, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time talking about that because of course it came in word. How else would it come? You get that? He says, so he's not saying it didn't come in word. It did come in word, but I don't need to spend a lot of time on that because that's obvious. It should be obvious to everybody that it came in word. But uh, it's interesting because you, I think as an example, I'll use myself and maybe others. We get uncomfortable, A, because we don't have a lot of experience in evangelism. We haven't gone down, uh, I'm from South Florida, so maybe I haven't gone down to the beach and started ministering to the people on the boulevard there, or on the boardwalk. Here, I haven't gone to Eagle, well there's no one at Eagle Ridge, but anyway, uh, uh, you, you get my meaning though, right? I haven't been to some of these places downtown, and you know, we have a bounce house and whatnot, and that's all great, but are we really... You know, we, and we're meeting physical needs, right? Uh, someone needs a turkey for Thanksgiving, and I'm not minimizing any of that, and, and we need to meet physical needs. If you're trying to speak and preach the gospel to a man who hasn't had a meal in a week, I dare say he probably can't hear your message through the screams of his stomach. So there's something to be said for meeting needs, okay? Don't, don't uh, misunderstand what I'm saying. But don't be in the habit of some, embarrassingly raising my hand, Of, I gave out five turkeys today. Check the box. That's my evangelism. That's not evangelism. You're meeting needs, it's a conversation starter, but I guess you never started the conversation. It's a conversation starter, but you never ended it. You never went that far. So that's a challenge to me as much as it is to you guys. So yes, there's, it's in word, but he's getting to all these other things. And so look at uh, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching and reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness. We know that, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. You must have words. You have to have doctrine. You have to have scripture. And so I spent a little more time than what Paul did, um, but just to say that you have to have the word logos. Okay. The second attribute then is power power. Paul's gospel came in power, it was accompanied by divine power. This is dynamite power, it's explosive power, it's visible power, it's earth shaking power. This is the same word used of Jesus when he went on his ministry, and many, 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 many were. Uh, miraculously healed. He healed many, okay? And I'll just give you uh, the same word here, referenced, Matthew 11, a few different times. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. 11.21, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works, mighty works, if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago. 23, same thing. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, you would have remained until this day. Um, and so I'm talking about mighty works. These are divine, miraculous works that accompanied Paul. Now, he doesn't divulge what they are, but we know that they existed. Listen to Galatians three five. You guys remember this one. And Paul's asking, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you does he do that by works of the law or hearing with faith he doesn't dispute that there were works uh, 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 miraculous works he doesn't dispute that there were divine miracles and power demonstrated just like at pentecost he doesn't he doesn't say it didn't happen he said it did happen he just wants to know did it happen by works or did it happen by faith you get what I'm saying? So, these are the same divine, miraculous, powerful things that were accompanying Paul there, just as it did in Galatians and elsewhere. You can read it uh, all through um, Acts. You can read it in Ephesians, all about the miraculous signs and wonders. And oftentimes, it was used to authenticate the message and the messenger. All right, third attribute our third attribute is the Holy Spirit. How did the gospel come to them? It came in the holy spirit. Let's look at this. This is a critical element. They're all important. Surely they're all important, but you can't leave the holy spirit out of this. And I don't mean to say that the holy spirit is an ingredient, a little salt, a little pepper, and a little dash of the holy spirit. I don't want to be irreverent in that way. That's not what I'm saying. But he does list it here. Everything we're doing, this is true of everything, but but especially in this case, Uh, for our context. When you're going out there and you're preaching and you're teaching, or in my case, when I'm preparing uh, for a teaching uh, on a Monday night or anything that we're involved in, you have to involve the Holy Spirit, don't you? You, This isn't you. This isn't the Matt Monteith show and I just show up every Monday and tell some jokes, and we have a good time, and then we leave here, okay? I'm not that funny anyway. No, we have to involve the Holy Spirit. We are under the inspiration, direction, leading, guiding power of the Holy Spirit in everything we're doing, especially the preaching, the proclamation of the gospel, amen? The Holy Spirit must be involved, has to be, or else it just falls flat. My prayer every, uh, every evening here the prayer of Pastor John and and all the pastors, Pastor Ed, I'll speak for him here, our prayer corporately, individually, is that we don't magnify ourselves, we magnify God. I don't want you to remember anything that wasn't of Scripture. I don't want you to remember anything that wasn't of God. And By God's great grace, you guys leave here. And the only things that you're going to remember, well, there may be a couple other things, but mostly what you're remembering, what the Holy Spirit is bringing to memory are the things from Scripture, the things that he's doing in you, right? Amen? And so we have to involve the Holy Spirit. That's my prayer. That's our prayer. We don't magnify ourselves. We magnify the Lord. And we want everything we speak to be truth, rooted in your word. And whatever's not of truth, it falls by the wayside. It's on the editing floor. And that's the point here. And so he's dependent on the Holy Spirit working not only in him, wait now, but also in his audience, but also in his audience. Fourth attribute, full conviction, full conviction, Paul's confidence, same thing, resolute, it's unwavering, it's, it's rigid, it's, it's immovable, right, fully convinced, He's not wishy-washy. What is he fully convinced about? He's fully convinced that the Holy Spirit working in and through him and his audience with power and might and wonder and speaking the word, scripture, and reasoning with them with full conviction that the Holy Spirit is going to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. Amen? So the Spirit is there working miraculously and wondrously we can't fully comprehend it all and and so his conviction isn't in what he says it's not conviction in what he does it's not conviction in me it's conviction in the spirit of the living God who's out there doing and appointing people and calling them and and just getting in their lives and bringing them to repentance and that's what's happening here so what was their reaction what was their reaction that was verse five the proclamation of the gospel. But now we have their reaction, the reaction of the Thessalonians. And this is why he can say in verse four, I know that you're loved. I know you're brothers. I know you've been chosen. How do you know this? How can you be so certain of that, Paul? Because when I preach the gospel to you, it came in word, it came in power, it came in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Oh, and by the way, we were men of character. And now your reaction. Well, let's, let's look at the reaction. We have verse, let's look at verse six. Let's start there. He says, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. They became imitators. And we talked a lot about that last time, but here it is, uh, we're, we're right here at the verse, right? He says, you became imitators. Now look, this isn't some parody, this isn't some SNL skit, some gross Exaggeration, okay? This is a careful study, looking, evaluating, marking down the lives, the character, and what they taught Paul, Silas, and Timothy. They're looking intently. Okay, so this is, oh, okay, I see what he's doing. Okay, got it. All right. That didn't quite, oh, okay, all right. I, okay, I see what he's doing. They're imitating, right? Don't we do that? I tried to change a light bulb once in my car, it should take five minutes. I'm embarrassed to say it took me 30 in several YouTube videos, all right? Because I had to watch carefully, all right? I had to look and see what was going on. I thought you could just yank these things out. You can't do that. It costs a lot of money if you do that. Don't do that, all right? So you have to look at. You have to examine. Look at this now. It's with application of maximum effort. You're not just parroting them. It's not, you're not just miming them, You're not just doing an impression, you're actually doing the things that they were doing. I hope that makes sense to you guys. Now, in a general sense, we could say that they were living righteously, in a general sense. We could say they had patterns that matched Paul and Silas. They had patterns that matched Jesus. In a general sense, we could say that, and we would be fair, I think, in saying that. But that's not the context. The context is very specific. Paul's very specific about saying something here. It is the manner in which they received the gospel. They became imitators in the manner in which they received the gospel. Their imitation was specific to enduring with affliction. And that affliction came with joy of the Holy Spirit. That's how they were imitating. Yes, they, were, had, they had patterns and practices of righteousness. There is no question. See the intro for all that in, in the rest of the letter as we go through it. But specifically, they received the word with affliction and the joy of the Holy Spirit. And that's how they received it. That's how Paul received it. It's amazing. And so it is the manner in which they received the gospel. And so they begin to imitate. And so it's no wonder that he says, you are beloved. You're chosen. Now, let's look at the degree of imitation. We said that they imitated. What is the degree of imitation. How far did it go? Let's look. Verse 7. Actually, it's verse 7 through 10. Let's read it again. How far did their imitation go? So that you became an example. You imitated, verse 7, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia in Achaia. I I wonder if we have the the map up there. I I did this map here so you could get an idea. Uh, It's huge. So you have Philippi, you have Thessalonica, you have Berea, you have all of central and north uh, Greece that we know today, all, and, and other parts in Macedonia, there it is, all right? And then you have Achaia, which is, which is well south, into Athens and Corinth that we know, and then all those uh, islands all around. Imagine that whole area, and you know that from Philippi, from last week, Philippi to Thessalonica was what, 100 miles? And i just figure that out in your head. Amazing. He says, look here, you became an example to who? The local body, the local grocery store, he goes to all the believers in Macedonia and in Icaa. This is how far their imitation and their testimony spread. Watch now, verse 8. He says, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia. Oh no, that's not at all. We're, like, we're, we're going to keep going. But your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and, this is connected, to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. It's amazing. They were a walking testimony everywhere. Now look at this in verse 8. Look at what he says here. He says, It has gone forth everywhere. Now, Was it everywhere in the literal sense? No, he's not speaking technically. He's not speaking technically. He's speaking in the general sense. Oh, man, I'm in the juice business, and and someone uh, dropped a a large whole pallet of juice, and I had a worker come into my office and say, ah, flailing arms, they dropped a pallet of juice, and there's juice everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. Ding! Was there literally juice everywhere? No, come on, man, you're, you're being ridiculous, right? Did I think? Did I jump out of my seat with whatever I was doing and run in there because there was juice everywhere? No, there was a lot of juice, though. <laughs> I can tell you that. <laughs> and, and everywhere is probably an apt description, but no, it wasn't literally everywhere. He's not being technical here. He says, "Look, how far has your imitation gone? How far has your testimony gone?" Bang! All of Macedonia. That would have been enough. Oh no, that's not enough. It's all of Achaia. Oh, wait, that's, that's still not enough. It went everywhere. It's just gone everywhere, man. It's all over the place. It's incredible. Wow. <laughs> now, he's receiving, Paul is, he's receiving from Timothy the report from Timothy, and he's all the way down in Corinth. Well, that's, that's not all. He's getting reports from others. Verse 9, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God. Strangers, complete strangers... Are coming up to him in Corinth and saying, My goodness, this Thessalonian church, you heard of it, Paul? Yeah. <laughs> I'm paraphrasing. You're going to find that in scripture, but it's just amazing that you have, there's, you have people, bystanders, strangers, whoever, they're coming up to Paul in Corinth. Corinth, well, it's gone, that's okay. In Corinth to speak about all the things that they were doing and in all of Macedonia, all of Achaia, and then everywhere. It's incredible. All right, so he talks about the kind reception that they had. So, uh, and also from turning from idols and waiting for Jesus. And so the reception that they had, he's reflecting now. Remember, this is reflected, uh, reflective. He says the reception that we had. What that means is people are coming up to Paul and saying, hey, not only look at their testimony, look at what's going on here. And, and we know that you were there, Paul, because they report about you. They report about your reception. That is, when you and Silas showed up there for the first time, I know how it went because they keep telling me about it. They keep telling everybody about it. And you guys were warmly embraced. You guys were warmly accepted, brought in. That's why earlier on he says, you know, we wanted to share our very lives with you. Share our very lives with you. That's in chapter 10. We'll get, or chapter 2, we'll get there uh, next week. And so the reception was warm. They were welcomed, they were embraced. It wasn't a put on, it wasn't fake, it wasn't hypocrisy. And notice what else he says here, idols. He says that they were putting away idols. Where where is it here? He goes, you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Think about that. That's part of repentance. And you know, that whole ancient world was full of paganism and these polytheistic religions and and carved images and idols and stones and you know candles and whatever else you you think of that you conjure up in your mind that has to do with idol worship and you know the golden calf of the israelites we remember that and so oh man i don't do that i don't do that are you sure are you sure that you don't do that yeah pretty sure i don't yeah i don't have any engraved uh, graven images or anything at my house or anywhere dude I don't know what you're talking about oh. idolatry is more than just a carved image idolatry is more than a candle idolatry is more than some image or uh, innate object that you bend your knee to or light a candle to idolatry is so much more than that we focus on that the world would have you focus on that because the world is full of evil and deceit so naturally they would have you focus on that it's much more than that oh no it's a matter of the heart Listen listen now, don't go there, because I want you to hear it. Paul, What does Paul say about idolatry? He mentioned it here. Let's see what he says about it elsewhere. Colossians 3, 5. Sorry, Pastor Ed, I'm getting there ahead of you. I, I, I can't help it, though. What does he say? He says, put to death, Paul says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Put to death what is earthly in you. Listen, what's the list? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. Which is idolatry? No, no, I didn't say that. It's actually right there. He says, put this away, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, comma, which is idolatry. I, in this entire section of three five, you won't find anything about a candle. You won't find anything about a carved image. You won't find anything about the idolatry that you and I think about the most. No, it's sexual immorality, it's impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. Covetousness is internal. All of these are internal, but they express themselves outwardly. Amen? You guys get that? Internally, these are true, which then express themselves outwardly. Idolatry, he says right here, this is idolatry. He doesn't even say the physical expression is idolatry. That's not what he said. He said these internal sins, this is idolatry, which then expresses itself externally. That's idolatry. And verse 6 says, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. The wrath of God is coming on account of those things and things like those things, all of which is idolatry. He says, you have turned, I'm getting reports, not just from Timothy, but I'm getting reports from others, how you turned from idols, you repented, you turned away from idols to the true and living God. Marvelous, the true and living God. He says to serve the true and living God. Look at this now. Genuine faith is marked by repentance, a turning and fleeing. But watch now. Don't miss this part. We talk a lot about repentance. It's important. It's critical. I'm not dismissing it. But look now. There's a vacuum. Hello? There's a vacuum. If those idols go away, what are you going to replace it with? What is it replaced with? There's a vacuum. He says, fleeing from idolatry, watch now, to serve the true and living God. Serve the true and living God. Now, the derivative of this word serve is a favorite of, of mine. Dulos. Does that ring a bell for anybody? Dulos? Slave? Oh no, Matt. <laughs> oh gosh, I'm so embarrassed for you. It doesn't mean slave. It, it, it means servant. No, it means slave. That's what it means. It means slave. That means you have no rights. You're not your own. You don't belong to yourself. You don't exist for your own passions and pleasures to do whatever you want. You are a slave, period. And that's what it is, doulos, slave. We're not going to massage it. We're not going to bring it into the year 2022 and make it all politically correct. That's what it is. You turn from idols to serve, to become a slave, no longer to idols and darkness and sin and Satan, but you are now a slave of Christ. And you serve the true and living God. You're either a slave of sin or you're a slave of Christ. Those are your options. That's it. We're all slaves. You're either slaves of sin or you're slaves of Christ, period. And so you either love sin or you love the truth. And we'll get into loving the truth in his second letter. Loving the truth. Believing and loving the truth, synonymous. I can't wait till we get to uh, to 2 Corinthians, or Corinthians, 2nd Thessalonians. We're gonna get there. Alright, so either, you either either love sin or you love the truth. Now watch what else he says, verse 10. They're waiting for the Savior's return. Let's read it. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now what do they do? They're waiting. They're waiting. This is on on the other side of serving. Serving is an action. It's not sitting on the couch. Oh man, maybe another candy crush game, because I don't know. I'm just waiting here. I'm just waiting. No, you're actually doing something. All right? You're doing something. Waiting isn't passive, it's active. And in a sense, it is passive because you know time kind of passes us by. But you're not just on the couch, just slumming, doing nothing. You're actually active. You're actually participating. We had the three marks, didn't we? It was a faith that was working, right? I remember God. I go to God remembering you always, unceasingly. Man, what are they doing? Why do you go, Paul? Why are you always remembering the Thessalonians? Well, it's the work of faith. It's a faith that is active. It's working. It's not a dead faith, as James said. It's actually doing things. Oh, and your labor of love. It's a painful thing, but you're doing it. It's a charitable love, and you're not expecting anything in return. You're not operating in judgment and malice when the person that you're being charitable to gives you a stiff arm. No, so it's a labor of love and your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Waiting, let's sum it all the way up here to verse 10, waiting for his son from heaven, watch now, this is good, whom he raised from the dead, which they know, watch now, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. We're waiting with a hopeful, steadfast hope expectation that when he comes, and he is coming, it is to deliver us from the wrath to come. We're not just waiting for him, we're waiting for him to deliver us from the wrath that is coming. A expectation. These are new believers, and they, Paul, must have already, especially when you get into the second letter, he already told them about the man of lawlessness. He had already begun to tell them about eschatological topics. We'll get there, guys, hang on. But he had already t- t- begin to tell this little baby infant church all of these, man, these are really big topics and big meaty t- things. But here he says, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. When, when he writes that, they know what he's talking about. He doesn't have to elaborate, elaborate on that because he doesn't. Just scan over to chapter 2. He moves on to other things, which we'll get to for next time. But they're waiting, patiently, serving as a slave, waiting for his return to deliver from the wrath to come. Hmm, really quite incredible. So what have we learned here tonight in this very, very quick and rapid chapter? Can't believe we did one chapter in one evening. Last semester it was one verse, right? So we're really moving here. Um, We have... Paul thanking God about what they've done. We saw the three marks, the three characteristics of regenerated people, a faithful church. There are others, but these are the three that he's looking at tonight in his letter, right? And what was it? A faith that works, right? Their work of faith and their labor of love, which I've already talked about, and their steadfastness of hope in Christ Jesus. And then he says in verse 4, I know, I'm certain, there's no question that you are beloved by God, and He's chosen you. How do you know, Paul? I know because when I delivered the gospel to you, it came in word. I, I spoke from Scripture, okay? I spoke what Christ taught me, which was the same as He taught the other apostles. So I taught you the Word. I, I also came in power. It came in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction, in my life, our lives, our lives was a testimony, which we'll get to in chapter two. And with that was the reaction or the response that you had Thessalonians in light of all these things which was imitation and we saw how far the imitation went it spread like wildfire and they turned repenting it wasn't just some this is some really cool you know things things catching fire and I want to be part of the cool clubs No, no no it wasn't being part of the cool club They were repenting, turning from idols, turning from idolatry, which we just read a moment ago in Colossians 3, 5, and 6 to serve the true and living God. Amen?